Happy Wednesday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Rocketeer Minute where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest adventure movie Walt Disney's ever made. The 1991 Joe Johnston directed feature, The Rocketeer. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Hal Bryan, an airplane nerd from the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So Jim, here we go with Minute 93. And yeah, I, I keep saying that as we start these off, but I just I can't wrap my head around the fact that we've we've done this ninety two times already. We're working into triple digits pretty uh, next week, or yeah, sometime next week we're going to be hitting the triple digits. So it's kind of it's really coming down to the end. And uh, I guess we should we should uh, mention uh, behind the scenes uh, this is the this is our first episode where we post after we first met each other. Yes. Yes, as we're recording this, we're just back from uh, the Movies by Minute Chicago. Great, uh, a great gathering, a great get-together with with uh, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Back to the Future Minute uh, hosts and, and dozens of other people. Uh, yeah. We have maybe 75, 80 people uh, so, yeah, that, all down yeah, there. It, Met a lot of people face-to-face that we've talked to online or have listened to or have heard us or vice versa. Yeah, it was it was a, gr- a great time, yeah. and some some of those people weren't even making podcasts; they just listened to the shows and wanted to see the right. people that were behind the microphone. So it was quite a quite a, a good time with Hadboy. All yeah, I'd say. it really was. But uh, but for you and me to uh, to meet face to face right there in front of uh, in front of Gemini Twelve at the Adler Planetarium, <laughs> yes. how perfectly appropriate in front of a. It- it's changed the history of the space program for me forever. Yes, it's <laughs> it's it's changed my life. So, uh, so to everybody listening, if everything is suddenly super awkward, you know, <laughs> now that uh, Jim and I have catfished each other and shown yeah, up in real life, we've both we've both watched each other eat. So. Yes, <laughs> but we did not buy groceries. No, no, Let's just definitely be clear not. on that. Wow. Well, uh, we're we're let's let's get back to 1938 here, in, in, inside, which is inside way the before talk- we met. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's uh, we're we're back with um, everybody glaring at each other. This is this starts out with we start out with uh, Neville glaring at the uh, the Nazi agent guy with the hat, and he turns around and starts glaring at uh, Jenny, and Jenny glares at him, and Lothar. I don't know what Lothar is doing. He's just kind of standing there and being tall. You know, it's amazing to me. Look how bright that light is in Jennifer Connelly's face. And she just keeps, you know, that, that searchlight just pans right across, hits her full on. She blinks and looks away, but not right away. And it's not no, like she's, she's, not, she's like, not just reacting to the light and stuff. She's just holding it right there. And her pupils are so small. You know how bright that is. Oh, yeah. And she's just there illuminated like a, you know, like a China doll. It's all sort of alabaster. And she looks like, a, you know, a teenage girl who is told she's not going to the concert tonight. It just <laughs> exactly. oh, just right. angry, just super yes. angry. A teenage girl who was on her way to the concert and was kidnapped by the lead singer, put <laughs> yeah. chloroform soaked rag. Took her to uh, an observatory and then onto a zeppelin. You know, it's yeah. it's a bit cliche, but we you know we've all been you know, there. We've seen it before. Yeah, it's just one of those everybody can relate. Right. So uh, we we leave we leave Jenny in you know her her uh, the highly lit Jenny and we're back to uh, poor Cliff who's uh, bounced down uh, a hillside and is uh, laying on the uh, in the Hollywood Hills with where the rattlesnakes are. Right. And uh, fortunately, he happened to have landed right next to a uh, a sternbut. Uh, Sturmut Taylung? Is that the right? Sturmut Taylung? I'm saying I'm saying it right. Something like that. A stormtrooper, yeah. <laughs> a stormtrooper. And uh, 
He's relieving him of, if anybody's ever played uh, Wolfenstein, this is what you do. You knock somebody down and grab their uh, ammo. Exactly. So he's uh, going with, now what, what What kind of a pistol is that so that he's that, grabbing there? Uh, that is a, uh, a Mauser, Mauser C96, made in Germany, a good uh, German sidearm, made from the late 1800s, like 18, well, 1896, because that's where C96 came from. And they made that up through the late 30s. So it, uh, they were probably just winding down production about the time this uh, this movie takes place. So it was a, a proper sidearm. Uh, it was nicknamed the broom handle Mauser, and you don't get a great look at this except maybe right uh, when we still see it in the holster on the uh, on the German. You can kind of see that the uh, the grip is actually very round. It's a little bit unusual. Oh, okay, it's not yeah. like a Colt 1911 where it's yeah, sort it's of almost a like a putty knife. Size. Yeah, exactly. It's got that look to it. Um, and then these also had a. Uh, they had a wooden stock that you would put on and basically turn it into a rifle and then that stock would open up and be a storage case for it. Of course, uh, Cliff is there helping himself to that. And then in, and then if you look in the foreground, you see some sort of canvas pouches with leather straps. Those are the uh, uh, MP40 or the Schmeiser ammo pouches. So that's a, oh, okay. individual magazines would go in there. And, and I, uh, uh, I think I've mentioned on the show before that we had an antique and collectible toy business. My wife and I were producing, among other things, sort of uniforms and accessories in one-sixth scale, sort of hyper-detailed stuff. So she would sit there with little tiny scale canvas and real real leather and tiny, tiny strips and put these little bead tacks in to make those little leather straps hook on and open up and put little magazines in there. It was just crazy. When you look at the uh, when you look at the Mauser, if you imagine that uh, with a scope on it, it'll look familiar to Star Wars fans. That's essentially ah. Han Solo's sidearm. So he's got a good blaster at his side. Yes, as he's ex- heading up the ex- heading up the wall, and no no sign of uh, any ancient religions at this point. Yeah. Just just the good blaster. And then we get to just an epic comic moment that if you're not looking for it, you might miss it. It's uh, the stormtroopers are being pressed back thanks to the work of both the FBI and Eddie Valentine's gang. And uh, we see uh, Wooly there next to Eddie, and they're both blasting away with their uh, typewriters. Right. <laughs> uh, just rat-a-tat-tatting all, all the way. And, and mo- great view of the Tommy guns there, by yeah, the way. Exactly. Just really a beautiful view of those Thompsons. And their eyes are mostly closed while they're firing if you go yeah. sort of frame <laughs> by frame. <laughs> They don't do this uh, very often, right. apparently. But as you said, just such a classic moment when they uh, when they both stop for a moment and then turn and look at each other. You know, as it's it's sort of politics make strange bedfellows, but on a much much bigger and and uh, and more bullet ridden scale. I want to do something that I haven't done. I've been reading the uh, the novelization of the Rocketeer, which was written by Peter David, who is probably more famously known for his uh, uh, Star Trek novelizations. And he uh, he wrote this this section describing what's going on. This is uh, from uh, Fitch's point of view, and Fitch sa- uh, Fitch says he heard a burst of machine gun fire to his right, and he and Wooly glanced over, unsure the origin of the fusillade. There, crouched behind a police car, was Eddie Valentine blasting away at the Germans with patriotic zeal. He tossed a tight grin in the direction of the two men who would gladly, five minutes earlier, have tossed his butt in jail and seen the key on a one-way trip to France. Now I've seen everything, muttered Wooly. Oh, wow. I like this. I like the movie scene yeah, the a little movie bit scene works. I don't think it needed words. It's no. just the two of them just kind of... needed a glance. And it's interesting, The uh, not, to, not to necessarily dive right into the... Uh, the novelization minute <laughs> podcast, but I, and I don't, I'm sure I've read it, but it must, it would have been right around the time the film came out. So it's, it's been many, many years, 
But that uh, that language, you know, that's not 1938 language. Tossed his butt in jail. So yeah. it's interesting is the you know it would be his keister I yeah, believe his keister right or uh, <laughs> you know you'd send him up the river or you'd uh, yeah you know you'd 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 buy him a one way ticket to the slammer or whatever although they said something about a one way yes. ticket uh, for the key but uh, that's interesting so the the sort of the voice of the of the book at least in this one particular segment is not necessarily period appropriate but novelizations historically tend to be put together i'll be charitable and say very very quickly as a quick aside i had it was chatting with a couple of the guys or the guys from the back to the future minute at our get together in chicago and reminiscing about the back to the future novelization which i read many times when that film came out and certain sections would start with uh, with either quotes from the film or song lyrics uh, something and there's the the Huey Lewis song back in time. And there's a line where he says, please don't drive 88. In other words, you know, please don't go so fast that you at least inadvertently travel through time. But in a classic case of either misunderstood lyrics or overzealous editing, the lyric was quoted as please don't drive and eat, which never made, it it didn't make sense to me then. It doesn't make sense to me now, but there's something I still find very hilarious about it, but that's sort of the standard by which I judge novelizations that they are shoveled out very, very quickly. Uh, Actually, uh, I I was thinking of one, uh, there was a novelization that was put out the same time the 1978 Superman came out and I saw it and I thought, oh, this will be an interesting book. And it was called uh, Superman Last Son of Krypton. Okay. And the story had nothing to do with the movie, (laughs) but it was one of the most magnificent. I'd never read a Superman novel, but it was one of the most magnificent uh, stories of any uh, Superman story I'd ever seen. Really? It talks about how uh, uh, Lex Luthor had been, uh, it was kind of like the devil in Daniel Webster. He was there to save the world from Satan was the only way to describe it. It was this creature. It was this uh, supernatural creature that was going to take over the earth and then eventually the universe. And uh, Lex Luthor goes through this rather zen-like thing where he discovers that he can push himself through walls if he uh, uh, dropped all aluminum from his diet. So he was eating the very odd diet in jail, and he got out and managed to uh, uh, track down Superman and tell him what was going on. A very unusual story. I mean, I was I was captivated by it. I had nothing to do with the movie, and the only reason I read it was because the movie was out, and I liked the movie. But uh, if that you, is really peculiar, uh, that's really interesting. I, I have not. That at all. I mean, it was called Superman: Last Son of Krypton, and I do. I, I want to say Stuart Magnus was the name of the author, but I may be wrong. But it was a uh, it was a great book. I'm sure it's long out of print, but you could probably find it in a books or one of those uh, Amazon you know third party folks. I was. Uh, Quite quite a science, but I, I I can strongly recommend it to others. That's really amazing. That's as you said. I I I can't see a connection there with ah, the here, movie. I don't remember me. Elliot S. Magan, M A G G I N. You can get it for five dollars and sixty four cents at Thrift Books, for example, among many others. But yeah, I can. I, I would I would recommend read it. And it also, I don't want to give too many too much away from it. But basically, it was uh, Superman's dad, uh, Jor El, had sent a robot probe to Earth uh, when before or at, you know ahead of superman uh who was arriving shortly and the uh robot probe would scan the earth to find the smartest man around and it happened on albert einstein and it, the robot taught albert einstein how to read kryptonian and what was needed for for this boy to grow up and 
Albert Einstein was the one that directed Superman's ship to Smallville. So it's just a wow. lot of, I mean, it's not quite canon, but it's, uh, it's very intriguing um, curl accrues and extra additions on the, uh, on the Superman uh, legend. Anyway, if, we're, if we were doing the Superman Minute, that's, somebody else is doing that, though, but I can, exactly. I can highly recommend that book. Well, we'll send, uh, yeah, send that info their way. That's really intriguing. Yeah. I, I'm just trying to picture Gene Hackman walking through walls. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Well, let's, I've let's, seen Stranger Things. Let's get back to our flying uh, superhero, uh, who is not a superhero, at least according to uh, the Rocketeer himself. We're seeing that. We're seeing that again. That little scene where we never quite see him getting the getting the suit on, but he's just buttoning up the last couple of buttons. Right as he scrambles sure. up the hillside there, and while uh, everybody's doing the uh, mopping up operations on the uh, on the deck there on the on the on the par- in the parking lot of uh, of Griffith Park. It looks like it's, you know, they're, they're, nobody's paying attention to this guy wearing a, the X3, the number one. The one the reason everybody's there, but nobody right. happens to notice it. He's doing it. You, you might as well have a neon sign over his head that just says MacGuffin. Yes, here know, I am. an arrow, but... Uh, yes. Ignore me. <laughs> um, the uh, Again, I'd like to quote from the novelization. It says, Cliff gaining strength with every step as adrenaline surged through him, reached the observatory lawn and snatched up the helmet that he had put down earlier. The cops were mopping up the last of the commandos, and the surviving hoods were aiding the wounded. No one was looking in his direction, and that was just fine with him as he raced up the winding stone staircase. He glanced up and saw that the gondola was already rising toward the clouds. He heard the agent named Fitch shout, We're losing him! And then the other one, Wooly, suddenly crying out, Maybe not! Look! He knew who they had spotted. But then there was no, there were no shouts of halt, stop, no threats of arrest, no recriminations, nothing except a sense of anticipation, of hope, of prayer, of the realization of all of a sudden he had gone from being a patsy and a victim to being their last hope. He slammed wow. the helmet on, and by God, as he, I can keep going, <laughs> and by God, as he paused atop one of the copper domes for the first time, he truly felt like he. He was what the papers had made him out to be. He was going to be the hero, the one who saved the day. All this time he'd felt like a fake, on the run from everybody, somebody always coming after him, not now. Now they were doing the running, they were doing the running and he was doing the chasing, and he wasn't just some idiot pilot who'd stumbled into something beyond his understanding. He checked the Mauser's clip, ignited the rocket and leaped into the sky, a blossom of fire and smoke carried upward by the power of one man's vision and the hope of several dozen agents of the law. Anyway, uh, we'll save that part for another day. But it's a uh, nice, good, florid reading, but, you know, heck, this is a good, florid scene. It really is, yeah. And that uh, that hero shot, uh, There's, I mean, there's, there's more than one just yeah. wonderful shot in this whole sequence. Just that that the, spotlight running across the sp- Swatsika gives you, these are the stakes. Yeah, you know, exactly. Jenny's these getting the, taken by the Nazis. Right. <laughs> And Cliff's running up the staircase, and, and we he pauses up the staircase. We're looking back down as he's as he puts the helmet on, and there's this. And then he turns, he gives the camera a quick look, and it's just it, it's just so well shot. Then he you know see Willie and Fitch looking at him. Then of course he's up there next to the flag. He's all illuminated. He's he's uh, ratcheting around into the chamber for the uh, for the Mauser, and then tucking it away in his pocket. And then, as as uh, we were discussing a bit earlier, that flag, that flag, that that one at, at second fifty, you've got that beautiful uh, forty eight star flag, which uh, I guess we can we can spend some time talking for about that a bit. Uh, forty eight star flag carried us through two world wars, uh, in slightly different configurations. Of the, the the flag that we have, the forty eight star flag, there was an eight by six pattern, 
and uh, it was uh, signed into law by President Taft. That would be the new Stars and Stripes. Uh, he didn't. The thing is, when they start, first started producing it, they didn't quite say how the alignment of the stars were in that field. So what they had done originally, if you get a flag that was made between 1912 and say the end of World War One, more frequently than not, the uh, stars were staggered back and forth, similar to the 50 star flag that we have, where you have oh, a really? row. Yeah, back and forth, it would just just kind of weave. So uh, you didn't have that rectangular um, field. And uh, that changed as the as the 20s wore on and into the 30s. The uh, the four by eight pattern uh, became the typical one, the one that's uh yeah. I mean, this this particular flag. Every time you can think of World War II, that's the flag that you saw more most famously at Iwo Jima. Sure, I think that's that's where it's most embedded in people's psyches. And it's uh, if it's World War II and you only get a, a and it should be you know that eight by six pattern. Um, it's this is an easy mistake to catch in a lot of movies and TV series and things. A lot of people won't bother. They think, well, you don't see the flag for very long, or maybe it's it's not fully unfurled and it's a sort of waving. But you can tell right away if those stars are staggered or if they're lined up in you know in perfect perfect rows and columns. Yeah, yeah. If they're having the row of uh, <laughs> the row of seven or six. It, uh, but now you know, having found that out about the uh, the World War One thing, I'm starting to give yeah. a little more leeway. I have to watch more World yeah, War One exactly. films to see if they're staggered like that, because apparently the World War Two one is a mistake to show in a World War One film. And that one, I I uh, I don't think I'd ever come across that before. Um, in our museum here in Oshkosh, we've got uh, we've got a big 48 star flag. I wish I knew more of the provenance of it. There's no reason to think it's it's not something that's just been around uh, forever. But it's uh, it hangs uh, in our Eagle Hangar with our primarily World War II exhibits and things, and it's. Um, my best guess, it's probably about 30 feet wide. So it's uh, it's a good-sized, uh, definitely a good-sized thing and a, and a wonderful backdrop for some of the events and things that we do. But um, it is once in a great while you'll get somebody who'll look at it and they'll kind of stare and frown, and then you see them start counting. And of those who count, you know, a tiny percentage of them will start to frown and say, wait, they're supposed to be 50 stars. Well... Not back then. No offense, Alaska and Hawaii, but uh, you weren't there yet. I was one of the few people to have been born under a 49-star flag. But I remember remember as a kid, there were a lot of uh, people in my neighborhood in New Jersey who still had 48-star flags that they'd hang out on Flag Day and Memorial Day and Fourth of July. And I can remember, I think I was about, I think it was about 8 or 10 years old. And I remember the the American Legion... Uh, in my town and probably all around the, the country, they were collecting 48-star flags and replacing them with free 50-star flags. And I think that was just one of their national projects that they would just, anybody that was flying one on the 4th of July, they'd come to the house. And my next-door neighbor had a 48-star flag, and I know he got a brand-new 50-star flag to replace it with, and they took away his old 48-star. Really? Uh, yeah, that would be about late 60s, 68, 1970, and around there. Um, so they, I mean, you know, even long after long after the 48s had been retired in 1959, they uh, they continue to be in many people's attics and on their front porches for for years. Well, sure, it's uh, you know we we had the 48 stars for so long. Number one and number two, you imagine something that you were flying during the war. It, it's you'd be hard pressed to say, well, I'm just going to sort of get rid of yeah. it or you know retire it just because it's not quite accurate anymore. So it makes uh, it makes sense. Of course, now, you know, other than, you know, like I said, the, the one I see in our museum, I don't recall the last time I've 
seen one outside of a museum. Yeah, it's very it's it's a you know it's a different world, and and it's kind of weird. I mean, in my my thinking, I always thought that you know the forty eight star flag was around forever, and then they made the fifty star flag. But the fifty star flag has now been uh, the longest the longest lasting flag that we've ever had as a country. So that's uh, you know it's, it's the long the longest standard of the U.S. and we live in that age. So. <laughs> Um, and then we, uh, this beautiful parting shot here as the, uh, as ILM takes over from, uh, uh, from the live action shot and, uh, and right. he does a little, the little roll there, that beautiful, that beautiful roll where he just puts the engine up on top. Just, it reminds me of the, uh, you would, you know, the terms far better than I do, but the, uh, the shuttle yeah. when it does its, or uh, when it would do its, uh. It's roll on the way up. Uh, there was a term for it. I can't remember what it is. Well, now. actually, is a, yeah. The, what, um, there is a it, what would happen when it initially left the left the ground. It would be pointed uh, due north, at ninety degrees, and then the roll the roll program uh, would initiate and turn the turn whatever ship, not only the shuttle but uh, Saturn V's or whatever, to the desired inclination that uh, they were trying to intercept from uh, from from Cape Canaveral. And uh, typically nowadays, for example, if you were trying to get to the the, the space shop, the space station, uh, you'd roll to fifty one point five six degrees, and uh, that was that's the uh, <laughs> that's that's the uh, the the uh, right ascent. Uh, let me make sure I'm saying this right. It's the inclination. It's it's the inclination of the orbit, and you're trying to uh, you're trying to intercept the uh, right ascension of the ascending node. Which is the uphill? If you picture a, a giant sine wave going around the planet, you're trying to hit the. You're, it, it's actually. A, I mean, you're you're going in an ellipse, but if you did it on a ground track, it would look like a sine wave. And you're trying to climb up the uphill side of a sine wave uh, to get to the space station. So you head off at fifty one point uh, fifty one degrees fifty nine point fifty one point fifty nine degrees, and that'll take you to the International Space Station if you do your if you do your math right. So uh, if only Cliff had just kept his thumb down on the yeah. button that much longer, but he's got other business. Yeah, that's true. So he he had to figure out he, he had to, he had to figure out what the uh, what the inclination was to the I, I'm guessing it was eyeballing. He doesn't really have any uh, heads up displays, and as far as we know, <laughs> maybe he didn't put right. any heads up display inside that helmet. So he just rolled around until he saw a big swastika and said, "There's there's where I'm heading." <laughs> exactly, and such a beautiful shot that takeoff, as you said, is just gorgeous. You got the practical fire effects, and then. What I'm um, guessing is uh, a matted-in shot of the maquette with the animated fire uh, coming out the back, that roll, and then we we end on Paul Servino's face, and he's just about to say something, but in this minute, he doesn't say it, although he does at the end of every single episode of our show, (laughs) if you you listen all the way through uh, at uh, our wonderful uh, outro music, uh, courtesy of our buddy Tom Geyer. He's not not saying, go get a Homburg like me. Uh, (laughs) That is a beautiful hat. (laughs) It's... Although I would, I would if if and especially if Paul Servino told yeah, me. Yeah, and this it's just well, okay. Yeah, you know, the the only sad part in this is this is the last time we see uh, we see Eddie Valentine. This is the, the farewell, but it's a great it's well, a great parting shot. Yes, you know. it is. I mean, we see him, of course, when he says the line in tomorrow's episode. That's true. Tomorrow's yeah. minute, but but yeah, this is uh, yeah, and we this is going to wrap it up for him. We've already said goodbye to Wooly and Fitch. No more Wooly and Fitch either. Ah. So we're we're already beginning our farewells. Uh, but let's let's just hold on to it for for another moment. We can do that tomorrow. We can, we'll talk yes. about it some more. Uh, if you folks would like to talk some more about this thing, uh, if you, if you did go to um, Movies by Minutes Chicago, please uh, let us know how how you liked it, how, what good times that you had there. Uh, we'd be always happy to talk to you on social media. Find us at Twitter Rocketeer Minute. Find us on Facebook Facebook dot com slash Rocketeer Minute. Find us at the great big site Rocketeer Minute dot com. 
where you can catch up on previous episodes and buy a cool swag that's uh, based on the Rocketeer and other things. And, uh, of course, you are already probably signed up for an iTunes and uh, Google Play to get our show hot and fresh every morning. If if you're not, go in there, type in Rocketeer Minute in the search bar, uh, hit subscribe when it comes up, and boom, you will get it every day. So uh, join us here tomorrow, Thursday, when we'll have some more uh, interesting... We will have the line of the show. This is my my favorite line. But we'll talk about it more tomorrow here on the Rocketeer Minute. So until next time, over and out. Get him, kid.